Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, March 16th, 2023. I'm John Podhartz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Again, commending to your attention our April issue at commentary.org, all up for your perusal pieces by our own Christine Rosen, our own Matt Connetti, our own John Podhartz. Uh, Gary Saul Morrison on the Russian view of war. Joseph Epstein on what is taste. Really wonderful issue. Please go to commentary.org and read it if you are a subscriber. And if you are not a subscriber, become a subscriber. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Washington commentary columnist, and like Christine, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Uh, guys, um, I just want to commend to your attention something else aside from the April issue and uh, on online at commentary.org. Um, so as you know, uh, uh, MSNBC is uh, rather more than ordinarily consumed with the subject of Donald Trump. Um, it is, you know, it's maybe it's not really an oldie station now because Trump, of course, is going to be a candidate for president. But, um, uh, it, uh, the Nicole Wallace show, uh, at uh, four o'clock, uh, is basically the Trump show. It's every day it's Trump. And, uh, two interesting things happened yesterday. I want to, uh, bring, bring to you. So, um, uh, Michael Cohen, Trump's uh, personal, uh, you know, uh, if Tom Hagen were an idiot, Michael Cohen would be his Tom Hagen, uh, testified before the uh, Manhattan or Manhattan DA's grand jury yesterday in the pending, I guess, indictment of Trump's for uh, pending indictment of Trump in the Stormy Daniels payoff case for which Cohen himself has already been convicted of a he was convicted of a uh felony and sentenced to three and a half years in jail and then actually served almost no time uh because of covid and other things um cohen is, you know said you know do you don't need to worry about stormy to the trump hating nicole wallace audience she's going to be a fantastic witness um, so this is where we get into what exactly is Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA doing, because if the two key witnesses that are going to bring Trump down are convicted fraudster, Michael Cohen and a porn star. And I don't, th I, I mean, a sex worker porn star. I would use a more blatant term for sex worker, but I, I don't want to get crosswise of uh, too many people. So um, I don't know if they're the only witnesses. I don't know who's the witnesses. We don't even know what the case is. But <clears throat> MSNBC, in its desperate effort to shore up its 4 o'clock ratings and other things, um, I uh, literally... I've got to find this. I'm sorry. I had it and I lost it. Um, well, I, 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 as you find it, I, I do think yeah. it shows um, the uh, tenuousness of the case that is being uh, built um, against Trump. And look, it's not just MAGA people. It's uh, not just the Wall Street Journal that's saying this is a potentially weak case. It's also liberal uh, columnists like Ruth Marcus right. in the right. Washington so Post. Right. So here's what I want. So this is a piece that MSNBC put up uh, and that was uh, tweeted by by Nicole Wallace's show. Um, why Michael Cohen wouldn't be as bad a prosecution witness as some may think by Jordan <laughs> Rubin. Prosecutors rely on problematic witnesses every day. This is no different. Well, no, you see, it is true that prosecutors rely on problematic witnesses in cases that nobody is paying attention to and that the jury will, in which the jury will have not heard anything about anybody. And prosecutors don't like problematic witnesses. It's one of the many reasons that certain types of cases are not brought at all because of the nature of the witnesses 
if you want to secure a conviction or your purpose in trying a case is to secure a conviction, you don't want somebody who has already been convicted of a felony and has already been in jail to be your star witness. You don't want a porn star sex worker to be a star witness. You want Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm to be a star witness. You want Caesar's wife to be a star witness. This Maybe he wouldn't be as bad a witness as some may think, but he's a bad witness. And if really, if the case is going to rely on the testimony of Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels, I genuinely don't know what Bragg thinks he's doing. We don't know that that's what's happening, but it's important, I think, to to lay that out. Yeah, I mean, just to take a step back, the theory of the case, as we understand it, is that uh, Trump um, directed Michael Cohen, his uh, fixer, to pay off uh, Stormy Daniels' story about their affair. Um, uh, typically, in the past, the National Enquirer would buy up these stories for Trump and then sit on them, keep them from the public. But in this case, the Enquirer did not, and so it was left to Cohen to do it. And then uh, Trump reimbursed Cohen for the expense uh, through basically the monthly retainer. He paid Cohen to do all of his dirty work. And the theory of the case is that Trump's action was illegal, according to the Manhattan DA. Uh, One, uh, because it was a falsification of business records. And two, uh, because it constituted an illegal campaign finance um, donation. And the first point about the falsification of business records is that typically that's a misdemeanor in, uh, in New York. But, uh, according to the theory of this case, as, as we assume Bragg is, um, thinking about it, he would elevate that to a felony. And then the, the campaign finance violation is very murky because hush money is not actually illegal. And Trump could say he was just paying, Stormy Daniels, because he didn't want Melania to know that he had had this affair with her. An affair, of course, Trump denies. Trump denies everything. Um, so the 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 case itself is is very rickety, and it, it, even before you get to the witnesses. But it strikes me, John, that um, actually the case, the merits of the case, don't matter to the Trump opposition here. the The point is the indictment doesn't matter how you get to the indictment if you're Alvin Bragg. You need to indict Trump. And the reason you need to indict Trump is the not only the desire among half the country to see Trump handcuffed, but also the belief that extends into some parts of uh, the anti-Trump Republican Party that if you do get Trump handcuffed, if you do get Trump fingerprinted, if you do present Trump with the idea that he could face jail time, that might actually force him into a bargain where he doesn't run for president. And so they, so you got Stormy Daniels and you got Michael Cohen and these very unreliable witnesses. But I think the actual um, motivation isn't isn't the details of the case at all. It's simply to force this moment of reckoning. But when you do that, it raises the possibility that it could all go horribly wrong, <laughs> you know, and Trump won't be deterred and he will fight the case and it could eventually leave him stronger than he was before. There are all also, I think, um, some some incentives uh, here among Trump's enemies that are sort of across purposes. I mean, uh, when you talk about the credibility and the appeal or lack thereof of the witnesses, uh, these are the players in the case. Um, it's it's Trump and a porn star and a, and a convicted lowlife. Um, those are the main players in the in the case. Now, while on the one hand they make for bad witnesses, on the other hand, um, highlighting the fact that this is the tr- this is the company that Trump keeps or kept. Um, is also part of the goal, right? To 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 air all this filthy laundry out in public for as long as possible, keep the three of them connected in the public eye. Um, that's also a kind of goal of of Trump's enemies and detractors. In the end, Christine, 
prosecutors shouldn't bring garbage cases ever. Um, interesting thing going on in New Mexico, by the way, uh, with the Alec Baldwin case. Uh, Alec Baldwin, you know, after almost a, a more than a year of investigation of this incident that was seen by many people and d- doesn't seem to be all that complicated ended up getting you know indicted for manslaughter charges um and uh that case i think is almost certainly going to be thrown out because the special prosecutor who was appointed to the case uh then ran for and won a legislative seat in i, I don't know which which uh, state legislature in New Mexico the she she got elected to and uh and the Baldwin lawyers uh, properly said um she can't serve simultaneously as a member of the state legislature and as you know essentially in the you know in this role in the judicial system uh, that is not you know she can't be both an executive official and a legislative official at the same time but even more important than that, which is not part of the the proceeding against her, the the, the claim that they're bringing in court against her, um, is the idea that this is a predicate to a very open and shut argument that she indicted him or was pursuing him in order to benefit her race for the state legislature, and was therefore, you know, uh, the the case could be basically thrown out. Uh, on, on summary judgment in the courtroom and that prosecutor uh resigned uh, from from the prosecution saying she didn't want to be the issue well she is the issue i think it's likely that the case will be thrown out and part of the when you throw out a case like that on summary judgment what you're saying is it shouldn't have been brought in the first place is it so i'm only bringing this up and you know as an analog not just because you know Baldwin played Trump on SNL, but because encouraging reckless behavior uh, among prosecutors is yet another way that we create institutional uh, cynicism and and a, and a suspicion of the good working order of the country and its and its systems of 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 justice no this yeah this this i was it reminds me of our friend yuval levin's argument about you know institutions versus platforms and people forget i think it's actually a healthy thing that lots of people don't think of prosecutors as being political actors but in fact in many cases they are i mean a lot of their decisions are informed by the politics of particular situations and this is why you know at least if you're conservative you've been we've all been very concerned for for many years now about efforts to to place prosecutors who have a very um, in my opinion, warped sense of what criminal justice should look like in terms of the kinds of cases they prosecute um, in cities like, you know, New York and Philadelphia and and obviously San Francisco. So the idea that prosecutors aren't uh, thinking about what they what cases they bring with politics, you know, without politics in mind, justice is not blindfolded when they make those initial decisions. And having served on many criminal juries, I'm a longtime DC resident. I have served on many, many juries where the star witnesses were like drug dealers, pimps, um, all kinds of people who had all been kind of um, uh, transformed into violence interrupters or some sort of vague thing that tried to make their criminal past. They, they were not persuasive witnesses. In the case of Trump, I think it's a very bad decision to highlight this as the way they're going to get him, right? That this went on throughout his presidency. Oh, we're going to get him with impeachment. Oh, he's going to be indicted for, you know, under emoluments. He's going to get this, that, and they never quite got him. And so I think Abe is right that if they go for this and there are, and it's a weak case, um, and he comes out of it, maybe a little battered and associated with, you know, the Stormy Daniels of the world, but victorious and claims victory for himself. Politically, that helps him. Um, it also, of course, depends on how long this trial uh, spins out. Um, but the mart, you know, he's very good at playing the martyr. We we see him continuing to do it with the last election, and his base loves it. Um, I I don't know how it's going to appeal to middle of the road folks, but all the polls right now still show him as a front runner, and I I would not underestimate his ability to turn this prosecution to his advantage, given the the, the seeming you know ricketiness of the case. 
Remember the uh, Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi yes. faced legal jeopardy because of his bunga bunga parties, exactly with actresses and starlets uh, and models, and uh, it didn't. Uh, that was not the the sword that felled him. Yeah, I, I was speaking to somebody who knows Trump uh, fairly well recently, and he reminded me that <clears throat> Trump writes nothing down, and he speaks in code. And these are lessons that Roy Cohn taught him. Roy Cohn, the former uh, Joseph McCarthy aide who uh, then became Trump's personal attorney uh, uh, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, that makes Trump a very slippery target for a legal investigation. You see this even in the January 6th stuff where, uh, you know, politically, I think it's an open and shut case that Trump is responsible for what happened. Legally, it gets murky because Trump never actually said, okay, now it's time to storm the Capitol, right? He's he speaks in his code the same way he did during that debate with Joe Biden, where he told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. Right. Um, yeah. And this is though you'll find the same material here. Actually, we should note, um, as uh, a lot of the media attention is focusing on Alvin Bragg and the Stormy Daniels, Michael Cohen drama. And of course, that's because it's taking place in New York City, where most of the media is located. Um, there is now a news of another audio recording of Trump asking uh, in Georgia to find the vote. So I think that reminds us of Trump's difficulty uh, in the sense that he this this jeopardy is on multiple fronts. There's one thing if he were just staring down the possibility of an indictment in Manhattan, uh, and there it would just be the same old drama that Christine is talking about that we went through you know, from since 2015, where who's Trump fighting today? And, you know, the Trump slayers are always flawed and he somehow is able to wriggle out of it. That's not quite the situation now because he's also facing Fonnie Willis down in Georgia and he's also facing Jack Smith in Washington, D.C. Now, we, we've had a hint of how he might fight the Georgia uh, case if it's brought against him when the um, member of the grand jury started popping up in the media talking about when she asked Lindsey Graham if it was too early in the year to wear a Santa hat. And Lindsey Graham said, no, not at all. And that really charmed her socks off. Nonetheless, that that case could still move forward. And then there's the case in Washington, D.C. That's when you do get a you have the possibility of Gulliver being tied down by all of the Lilliputians ropes, right? I mean, it's not just Manhattan. It's also Georgia and it's DC. And the man is 75 years old. I mean, it, that's going to consume a lot of his attention and energy. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, the story that you refer to, uh, there's a story in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, it's, it, it's interesting um, because it is uh, other grand jurors on that grand jury, uh, aside from um, the... Uh, 30-year-old Wiccan, uh, who was apparently the foreman and and did her uh, Benjamin Ginsburg tour of, uh, of media outlets. Um, other grand jurors ob apparently objecting to her behavior, to her, uh, you know, attention-seeking behavior, uh, spoke to the Journal-Constitution uh, anonymously um, because uh, they wanted to clear the decks and say that they were serious people and that they had done, this was eight months of their life. They had been very focused. They took it very seriously, and they really didn't like the idea that they were just flaky weirdos <laughs> who were sitting there for, for no purpose. And yeah, in the course of this piece... It is revealed, I don't have it in front of me, that the, I guess, the speaker of the Georgia legislature, uh, who who apparently has died in the interim, that Trump called him to demand a special session to withdraw or do something to withdraw the electors, the Biden electors, between, you know, the election and uh, January 6th. Um, and like uh, Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state, and like Brian Kemp, the governor, this guy said, I will do what it is legally appropriate for me to do. And Trump pushed him. And then Trump sort of was reduced to saying, thank you, thank you, thank you at the end of the phone call, because this guy was apparently very resolute in his uh, determination not to give in. I don't know what the legal 
meaning of this is Trump has free speech rights and he can call somebody and say, would you do this for me? And the guy can say, no, you can call that intimidation. You can call it blackmail. I don't know, you can call it all kinds of things. You are allowed to make a phone call to somebody and say something in the course of that phone call. Um, uh, if there's no threat, I guess, I mean, the threat is just implicit in the fact that the president of the United States is calling you and like breathing down your neck, but there's no, specific threat it is just another piece of evidence that he was focused on this idea that he could somehow reverse the results in georgia which let's just take it out of the legal context let's just say for the sake of argument that he reversed the results in georgia and he succeeded brad rap gave in to him and this happened and that happened he would still have lost the election in the electoral college. Like Georgia, he had this game in Georgia. I guess there was this other game going on in Arizona. I I think unless I'm mistaken that he lost the electoral college by 36 votes. And I don't think Georgia and Arizona add up to 36 votes. Well, he was also pressuring Michigan. Remember, he had the state officials in Michigan come in. Right. But that that was a much weaker. And that, I mean, look, Michigan, he lost by 150,000 votes. So you could even make a case that there's a case. Georgia was 12,000 votes. And I don't know what Arizona ended up being. Was it 10 or is it 20? I don't know. But you can make a, you can sort of make a case. Michigan, he was never even going to get close to. But I just think that, you know, the more rationally you sort of look at this, the more you see he was he had he had set out this game before the election. He wasn't going to accept the results of the election if he lost. And then it was just a question of what instrument he would use to contest the results of the election. Yeah, it was 11,000 votes in Arizona. It was so. 11,000 and 12,000 in Georgia, right? Or 11, yeah. what was it he said in the perfect phone call with Brad Raffensperger? Right. He needed 11,800 right. votes or something. So, I, I mean, first of all, no election, no one's ever found 11,000 votes. You know, that's never happened. I mean, 11,000 missing votes. Um, so, you know, uh, anyway, but but I just think like the in, not only in terms of the Lilliputian tie down, which I think is a really great like metaphor for what could happen here on three fronts, but just people being reminded of what he was attempting to pull off is i think unbelievably toxic like i don't mean among whether or not he'll get the republican nomination right now i kind of assume he's going to get the republican nomination which is a whole other calamity we can discuss but but um uh all people need to be reminded of the 7 million people or the 4 million people or whatever, you know, is why they didn't want to vote for him in 2020. That would be sufficient to him not getting elected in 2024 and probably a lot worse. Um, And that's, that's what, that's what any indictment, that's what any thing that puts this subject front and center in the course of the next 18, 19 months will do but with with that thinking there's always the question does anyone need reminding um does everyone know already and know and know again and haven't we all been reminded already so so that if there isn't a sufficient need to remind anyone if everyone's up to date on on the transgressions of trump um do you risk a misstep that could then somehow evoke some sympathy for his side more than there was before i don't i don't mean just purely by martyring him um but just um some sort of mistake some something that that make that makes it look like overreach that that lends a little credence to his claims of being uh of it being a witch hunt and his being persecuted 
Well, especially given the case with the papers. I mean, look, he I, I think he kind of willfully obstructed efforts to get those documents back in the hands of, of the archives where they belonged. But obviously, Joe Biden has a problem in this department, too. So, you know, imagine Biden is the nominee again and Trump is the nominee again. And in a debate scenario, if they try to come after Trump for his legal problems, he, first of all, will appear more vigorous than Biden, no matter what. And he can just come right back at him with, yeah, you know what? They came after me and they couldn't get me. And, you know, they didn't even really come after you. And that's unfair. And I mean, he can he can spin this a million different ways that would actually appeal to more than just MAGA types who 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 think that there are, in some cases, two systems of justice in this country. I do think uh, in uh, all being equal, January 6th is a deal breaker. And we saw that uh, with the midterm election, where when Trump reappeared on the campaign trail in the final weeks, uh, that uh, coincided with the uh, psychopath's attack on Paul Pelosi. It came in the aftermath of the January 6th hearings. And I and when you look at those exit polls and, of course, the new question that appeared last year about threats to democracy were very high. And we can see also the most MAGA Trumpy candidates were the ones who lost. It, was, it seems by my colleague, uh, our colleague, Christine Phil Wallach, did a great study where he said basically a Trump endorsement on the basis of 2020 uh, big lie cost a Republican about five points, right? So so all things being equal, I do think that democracy in January 6th hurts Trump. And, And Biden will remind people of that. And I think it will motivate people to uh, mobilize against Trump. However, the danger is that not everything will be equal next year. And Trump will have other arguments to point to, whether that is an economy in a prolonged recession, a war that is going badly in Ukraine, or a president who in the debate just doesn't seem up to the job. Okay. But let me, let me move from you. You made an analogy to the most uh, sublime and the single greatest work of satire in the English language. So I will now make a reference to a potboiler which is a few good men uh you know the the 1994 movie with tom cruise and jack nicholson and people uh the 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 pivotal scene that is the sort of the meme of the movie which is um nicholson losing his temper with with tom cruise on the stand and saying you're on the code red you know some men have to who's gonna stand and protect this country you you know that that scene so uh and there's also this bit right before it where Cruz, uh, overacting like crazy or seeming to overact like crazy, says, you know, I want the truth, right? So this scene is misunderstood because people have don't remember the movie as a whole. Cruz over, Cruz's character goes at Nicholson's character purposefully. He goes, his hysteria and overacting is deliberate to smoke out Nicholson's Colonel Jessup, to make Colonel Jessup lose his temper and say what he has to say that will convict that will free Cruz's clients who have been falsely accused of this terrible crime. He does it on purpose. When you see the clip, you think, oh my God, Tom Cruise is like a ridiculous overactor. But that's the point of the character. I use this analogy to say that whatever it is that pushes that that the Democrats are doing, they'll go too far and they'll you know spend 360 days a year on Nicole Wallace's show doing this and doing that. If they can push Trump into saying, you're damn right, I ordered the code red 500 times next year. Yeah, it's people do, they remember or they don't remember. But if they can get Trump to focus obsessively on this to the exclusion of the other things that Matt's talking about, where there are all kinds of things in the in the atmosphere in 2024 that might give him a real shot at being reelected to the presidency, uh, they can take him down. And that's where I think it's not just the indictment that Matt talks about, because that'll be helpful, because it'll time that also, you know, focus attention away and be a reminder and there'll be a picture of Trump in handcuffs or their Trump being fingerprinted or whatever there is. That's all, that's all whatever it'll be. And that could have create blowback, but Trump can create his own blowback to himself. And that is actually the thing. 
Trump's worst enemy, Trump's greatest gift to himself is himself, and Trump's worst enemy is himself. And uh, he was the he 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 basically lost the 2020 election because of his inconstancy uh, over the course of the of the months of COVID and seeming to be kind of like not in control of anything and being uh, weird and untrustworthy and and that's really what what I believe took him down and if he looks like that guy. You know, everybody who didn't vote for the 81 million people who didn't vote for him in 2020 will not vote for him in 2024. I can see Trump as uh, Colonel uh, Jessup, who I've always taken to be the protagonist of a few good men. <laughs> I have more trouble seeing Joe Biden as Tom Cruise. That's right. well, no, that's, Joe that's, Biden. Does, it's Joe Biden doesn't have to be Tom Cruise. Right. Anybody right. can anybody can Cruise. okay good maybe Tom Cruise will be Tom Cruise Cal this Penn is, you know wh- yeah. whoever Cal, the conservative well, version yeah. of Cal Penn is <laughs> yeah I suppose could be could be uh, uh, Tom Cruise um, somebody did make the interesting point that this hilarious story that Biden told about how he knew gay marriage was a good thing because he saw two men kissing when he was in high school and that um, the 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 obvious follow up to that since that would have been say around sixty one sixty two would have been so why for uh, 50 years did you oppose gay marriage marriage, yes right like cal this is why you want cal penn to interview you if you're joe biden and not an actual journalist because an actual journalist might have the the foresight or the wherewithal to ask the follow-up question like okay so (laughs) why did you vote for the defense of marriage act i have you know my my theory about this story which i have been uh, thinking about um if it's not just an outright lie, which it could well be, this is Joe Biden and he does lie. If he does, well, but if he, in his memory, he has some kind of recovered memory where in 1961, he saw two guys uh, kissing. Maybe it was like a visiting Frenchman or something to peck on the cheek or even know how in the Godfather movies, some it was of Michael the people, and Fredo. Exactly. It was Michael and Fredo. Like so the guy look, got he grew killed up, five minutes later. Right. Well, he grew up in that, environment where a lot of ethnics where who may have you know had a little bit more of a european sensibility about male kissing and you know the biden's there little joey biden he might have thought well that's kind of unusual i haven't seen that before but the dad goes like well that's just how they say that they love each other because this is the school drop-off it wasn't exactly you know um it wasn't uh, Maurice, you know, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't, you know, the love that dare not speak its name. It could have just been a misperception. Um, and, it, but again, you're, you're probably right. Occam's razor says he's just making it up. Yeah. Anyway, I just think it's a, it's a, a touching, a touching moment in the yeah. history of lovely corn pop and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, yeah. my, my fabulism or, uh, fighting, fighting yeah. against apartheid yeah. in South Africa. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. My dad said to me, you know, Joey, we need the earned income tax credit. Uh, so um, his dad was just a dispenser of amazing. It's amazing um, how this his dad, who's you prophetic know wisdom. born in the early 20th century, has the same exact sensibilities as a early 21st century progressive. So ama- yes. I mean, who's so far ahead of his time, you know, this working yeah. class guy from uh, uh, Scranton and um, and Del- Delaware. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, okay, so um, uh, there is a growing sense, I think, on the right, but not just on the right, that uh, the Federal Reserves and the FDICs and the moves to shore up the banking system in the wake of the collapse of um, Silicon Valley Bank and the shuttering of Signature Bank, that... Um, uh, there is a um, time. There is a political time bomb ticking here. Uh, so the Biden administration was very careful in helping design this salvation of the banking system to say, "Don't worry, uh, no, no, no tax. Not a single taxpayer dollar is going to go to make these depositors at Silicon Valley Bank." 90% of whom apparently have had deposits in excess of $250,000, the natural FDIC limit um, that all bank accounts in America are um, are protected up, up to. Um, so don't worry, because there's no bailout 
because not a single taxpayer dollar is going to go to this uh, because it's going to come out of the fees that banks pay to the FDIC to protect the banking system. So the question is, is that alone? Assume nothing bad happens after this moment. No other bank goes under. Nothing nothing bad happens. The unsecured uh, deposits at other banks uh, remain safe as they were before. Um, and that there is no follow-on crisis at another bank or another series of regional banks or whatever. Um, is, is this bailout, it is a bailout, it's just not a direct taxpayer bailout, but it's still a bailout that creates all kinds of moral hazards for the future. But nonetheless, if nothing happens, I assume that it's a political net zero. Like it's not going to benefit. It's not going to help them. A lot of liberal opinion will say, oh, look, they saved the banking system, but it's not going to help them that, but it's not going to hurt them. However, oh, oh go ahead. Go well, ahead. Okay. I think they could play it in a way that helps them. They could they could say compare this to to, to two thousand eight. Look at no, this. They'll say that. I just yeah. don't know that it'll have it'll have any populist impact to say well, we gonna... saved the banking system and look what they did to the banking system. Like uh, that's something that Bloomberg op eds will be very you know will it'll be very nice if you if you on the Bloomberg machine and you read that piece and it makes you feel good about Biden and your banking system. But I don't know that it has any political well, impact. The average person is not impacted by what's going on yet. Right. I mean, right. you know, they didn't have money in, in Silicon Valley Bank. They don't even care what Credit Suisse is doing. <laughs> this is not this is a this is a kind of elite financial institution problem right now and an elite regulatory problem right now. I, I if it does have a uh trickle down effect in terms of the stability or or potential health of the economy if if you know um, all the stuff that Matt raised about the fed and interest rates and all the, all these questions that actually do in, impact the average american consumer whether it's inflation or or uh, interest rates um makes it harder to buy a home or get a mortgage all of those things are are going to be something that people want to talk about in in the fall but this i don't think unless it unless it really leads to the collapse of like bank of america or some large banks where people have their you know modest savings that's not gonna it's just not going to be an issue for them well we're moving to a situation where there's just one bank it's called the federal reserve (laughs) it's it's just backing up everything and so one of the uh arguments i think that the right is uh going to make and they're kind of all over the place uh, uh you know Half of the right is saying, well, this is just woke. They Silicon Valley Bank went woke and then it went broke. And that's not really what happened. I'm sorry. What happened was the Silicon Valley Bank was terribly managed. It went under the radar of regulators um, and it made a really bad bet in terms of long term government bonds, which lost their value because of raising interest rates. But, but you know, a lot of the right is fixated on wokeism. And so that's what they're saying. The other half um, is pointing out that, you know, regional uh, banking consumers, uh, as I say, in the Midwest are now in a position where they are bailing out the uh, depositors at in Silicon Valley. Right. And that's not very fair. And so I think that critique does have some populist uh, uh, weight behind it. The the big question here is, as you say, John, what's next and i have to say that whenever um people in government uh positions start saying everything's fine everything's fine you know it's nothing to see here (laughs) yeah what's the wizard of oz you know ignore that man behind the curtain everything is fine we have confidence in the banking system which is exactly what janet yellen is planning to say today when she is on capitol hill i get a little bit nervous Right. Um, And that's exactly remember, you know, that's kind of what was going on before the 2008 crisis. That was what was going on in early days of the pandemic when Trump was trying to say, don't worry, everything is fine. We got it taken care of. Um, I just so I have that I have that uh, I have that kind of, you know, sixth sense um, that this is actually just the beginning of the story and not the end. But the, the I, line that okay. the, just very briefly, the line that yeah. came back to me from 2008, I think it was John McCain who said the fundamentals of the economy are sound. Right. And then and then he he paid he, he had to pay. He had to pay for that 
immediately. Look, the thing that we don't know is how many banks are exposed to, to a to a uh, extraordinary degree in the way that the Silicon Valley Bank was exposed in exactly the same way, which is to say that they were overinvested in low interest long term bonds that are now almost valueless because uh the fed is now you know uh, selling bond not the whatever you know the 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 treasury is now selling bonds at a much higher interest rate and therefore cashing in your bonds to cover depositors or whatever um the the value of those bonds is going down and down and the amount of money that is covering your unsecured assets is lower and lower and lower and that's what happened in silicon valley bank you had that at signature bank along with an exposure to crypto funds and that was apparently very unhealthy but it's not out of the bounds of you know that we're in this kind of weird lull cuz they're cuz they did stop whatever they did they stopped some kind of a you know casket like a total bank panic and they deserve credit for that assuming that maybe it would be better if there was a bank panic all because you could have a slow rolling a kind of slow motion riot in which a bank that has the same exposure collapses next week or you know its depositors start saying or or a lot of people are asking for their money out at a, a lot of these regional banks they're just not doing it as fast as silicon valley bank did on this one day but the effect, the net effect is going to be the same, which is, you know what? I don't want to be in the first national bank of Pasquaxi. I would really rather be in Chase. I want to take my money and take it to Chase because Chase is so big and I'm really worried about this. And, you know, if 20% of depositors do that, even if they're low dollar depositors, you have a you have an asset and and liquidity crisis at at a bank and that could happen next week could happen in 2 weeks it happened in 3 and then at some point when suddenly six or seven banks in this scenario fail that's when you could then have a secondary bank panic i think i think one unexplored threat here is whether the fdic had a buyer for silicon valley bank last weekend uh, because you know, typically, when you have a bank run, and the F, the role of the FDIC and Treasury is to find another bank to purchase the the assets to take over the deposits, and that's what happens. Uh, and and there is some reporting; it's very um, sketchy right now. But there is some reporting that, in fact, there was a buyer lined up, but that 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 Elizabeth Warren's people on the FDIC vetoed that because. Warren and a large part of elite opinion now is dead set against consolidation, right? The dead set against mergers and they don't want banks to get bigger. Well, the the unintended consequence of that decision, not to go the traditional route of getting an, another buyer for the bank, but instead creating this new facility in treasury, which is backstopping all the deposits may end up being Precisely what you're saying, which is more consolidation because people are going to worry, well, you know, these regional banks, how safe are they? Maybe I'm going to take my stuff to the bigger banks anyway, since they have much larger capital cushions. The there there. So one on the actual macro level of what is happening to our economy, I don't think the story is over. And then two on the micro level of what happened here. What you know? What were the decisions that the choices that went into the rescue of the Silicon Valley Bank depositors? I think there's more information. Well, uh, that will come right. to light. And and there's another. I mean, you you mentioned the Elizabeth Warren angle. There is another angle in this question of whether there was another buyer uh, over the weekend, which was whether Treasury and the Fed and everybody like that uh, vetoed any buyer who didn't say i will immediately make every depositor at silicon valley bank whole one thing to say you're taking over and you're going to guarantee their at uh, their their money if you take it over if it's a depositor who has 10 million dollars at silicon valley bank or an account with that it's another if it's 500 million dollars then you have legitimate reason to say why do you why did you park the entirety of your assets in a single bank in a single place with no hedge that was reckless 
And I don't know why we have to cover your that was your your, your reckless decision making in in this regard. You should. It's not just the people who own stock in in Silicon Valley Bank, but the depositors who are stashing hundreds of millions of dollars in one account that is only secured with a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar federal guarantee, who need to <clears throat> take some ownership and responsibility for their decision-making, and the Fed and the Treasury Department wanted it known that every dollar at Silicon Valley Bank was protected. And we can't even get into the moral hazard stuff, because I don't think that's that's a political... I mean, moral hazard should be a political issue, and it's not. It will be. In the long term, it will be a huge issue. But uh, if if they interfered with a sale on those grounds... And we actually find out that they interfered with the sale on those grounds, that the purpose here was that the the Fed and the Treasury got together and said, oh, it's okay for these gigantic depositors. We'll make them whole rather than them having to negotiate their financial future with a banker and we stay out of it because it's really not our business and they're rich people and they're, you know, corporations that are obviously being run badly and they should suffer the consequences of their, of their foolishness. Um, So you could, that's the other possible story that we don't, the, the, the third possible story, by the way, is that there was really no buyer. And that's because the entire banking system knows that these other shoes are going to drop. Yeah. That's a scary and that they don't and they don't want any involvement. You know, ordinarily you'd say, wow, sure, I take over Silicon Valley Bank. It has all these great companies and rich depositors. And, you know, I I would kill to get any of those customers and I can get 20,000 of them at one go. And it's worth it to me even to lose 100 million. It's like it's like a client base built building. The fact that there wasn't like a mad rush to do that says that a lot of these places are like i don't this is not good now i want to say one other thing because i have this here about the wokeness about the argument that silicon valley went broke woke and then it went broke yeah i don't think that's entirely right but there is this fantastic detail in the financial times i want to read to you because i don't know what you call this wokeness or whatever you call it Long after Wall Street ordered its bankers back to the office, uh, SVB's chief executive, Greg Becker, at times worked from Hawaii. President Mike Deschano decamped to Florida. Chief Risk Officer Laura Zurieta was based in a suburb of Washington. And General Counsel Mike Zuckert worked mostly from New York, according to several people close to the bank. Last month, the bank acknowledged in its annual report that, quote, it may experience negative effects of a prolonged work-from-home arrangement. It said there may be prolonged negative effects at Silicon Valley Bank, said Silicon Valley Bank, from work-from-home arrangements. Yet SVB was prepared to take on extra risks to promote a culture that prized empathy for customers and staff and at times prioritized innovation and growth at the expense of risk management according to interviews with current and former workers. I don't know if you call that wokeness. You know, stay-at-homeism is wokeness. But there is some kind of parallel track to wokeness or the track of, you know, COVID, right. uh, you know, caution forever that does would seem to hew to one side of the ideological spectrum but it's the california wellness philosophy has become an ideology for some institutions and it's spreading like my first thought too was california (laughs) yes that's that's california let's not forget this is all happening Uh, can can i raise there is a little bit of schadenfreude as the uh, global financial system falls apart and that is um barney frank lost his job and uh i just i want to point that at you barney frank you know the author of the dodd frank regulations and a legendary liberal uh, congressman from Massachusetts. Uh, apparently, when he left Congress, among his uh, new jobs was to a seat on the board of Signature Bank, which went under um, at the same time as Silicon Valley Bank. And to listen to Barney Frank's interviews in the days since the bank collapse is just um, 
it's well it's a pleasure i mean it's a bad you know again it's a guilty pleasure it's schadenfreude but uh he was asked this is barney frank you know liberal lion liberal icon he was asked why he joined the board of this financial institution which he had spent his whole career trying to regulate he's like i needed the money <laughs> no way yeah, he did. He basically, i'm cashing in yeah I mean, oh no way <laughs> really that's why people work in the private sector to get money make money you know to have risk so if you know if there's one upside to this looming disaster, it's that um, Barney Frank is receiving a education in uh, in capitalism and uh, the profit motive. His, well, we should his, talk about. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, his Wikipedia page is going to be great before he's done. It's just going to be <laughs> the wonderful. late capitalists yeah. are going to be yeah. battling the um, uh, right wingers. I have two. <laughs> I have three words for you about Barney Frank. The more focus there is, a rent boy scandal, and that's right. all I'm going to say. Yeah. Go look. Go look it up. Thirty-five, almost thirty-five years old now, but that—that's all I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm, I'm all gonna say. There was yeah. a there was a prostitution ring being run out of his apartment by his by his boyfriend um, in in the late 1980s. Um, just he was never implicated in it, and it. But that was him. Um, John, you, you're gonna go somewhere else, perhaps, with this, but I, but I do think it's worth mentioning that. Uh, whether or not you call that um, sort of work from home stuff uh, wokeness, like Barney or, Frank's boyfriend, <laughs> exactly. Yes, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's an entrepreneur. You call, if you if you call that wokeness, or is it part of, uh, sort of California wellness culture, or what I have taken to sort of thinking of it as um, real long COVID, um, <laughs> the the well, I I do wonder if the very insecure state of our economy, things like this bank collapse. Um, how much longer all of that is going to stay in effect? Uh, the wokeness and the 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 sort of corporate wokeness and the 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 stay at home culture um, and everything else that goes along with it. Like you know, is there going to be? Is there going to come a time? And are we there where it is just too risky to keep this stuff alive in in corporate culture? We'll, we'll survive uh, rough very, times. Yeah, I think that is a that is a not only that, but there is a larger uh, uh, liberal contradiction problem going on here that we pr- don't have the time to adjudicate here. But um, uh, Thomas Edsel had a, a typically a really interesting and original piece about um, the collapse of cities in the wake of COVID because of the depopulation. And the depopulation in a lot of cities is, of course, among the most well-to-do, abandoning midtowns and uh, high high-income condo developments and things like that for uh, life in the suburbs where they're going to work at home and come in very uh, irregularly. <clears throat> and the um, financial impact on urban but on the budgets of cities is nothing short of catastrophic here and so you have american businesses kowtowing to this idea that people should work from home and they are destroying the social fabric of the united states um, or particularly what liberals want this is for us maybe an interesting hobson's choice moment where leftists who run a lot of these cities are now going to face horrible uh choices in what it is that they pay for and what it is that they can't pay for anymore you know large scale projects to uh you know support efforts to uh lower the risk of global warming through the construction of nonsense parks in lower manhattan that will keep the water levels from flooding neighborhoods in the event of rising tides and stuff like that you can do that when your balance sheets are in order and you suddenly, are you going to do that? Or are you going to pay for security at schools where there are shootings and those choices, those trade-offs are coming dead on and uh, liberals don't understand that by advocating this new world of hybrid work and staying home and long, you know, real long COVID and all of that, they are jeopardizing their own project, their own progressive project 
in the places that they live in the places that they wish want to want want to see as you know as as the advanced troops of the new progressive era so it's a that's another um interesting moment there i guess before we go we should we should talk briefly about uh the um i got two foreign policy things i want to bring up one uh the drone the attack on the drone which is now apparently I mean, enough was being leaked that like Putin ordered the attack on the drone, or someone's leaking that Putin ordered the attack. Like it, we authorized the attack. Someone high up on the yeah. drone. Someone high up, but it, I mean, it's right. Okay, so uh, so this wasn't just you know like a mistake or you know one of these things where they do it every day and it, it, the, like that there was something specific going on. The drone was down in the Black Sea, and apparently the. Russians are desperately trying to get their hands on on the drone. It's not so easy as we know from the Chinese balloon. I mean, it's not like that. You know, how how are they going to find it? But um, and we're we're not hearing a lot of screaming about it, right? Deliberate attack on an American military asset in in international airspace and in international waters, and and the Russians attacked us, and we're not going to do anything about it. And the other is. This bizarre fact that uh, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said it was fine with him that China was brokering a peace deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Did my brain just explode? Can 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 somebody explain? And may have to say something. He wasn't going to say this is really a crisis for us. I mean, whatever. But uh, is there any merit in having said what he said publicly? Anything that re- reduces tensions in the world is a good thing or something is what he said, which, of course, since this will increase tensions between us and China, saying that this reduces tensions in the world is the you know opposite of the case. But Well, I think I, just to take them in reverse order, I think Blinken's comment uh, revealed the mindset of the administration, which is they don't want to think about the Middle East. If China wants to go in there and try to broker a deal between um, Iran and Saudi, that's fine by them because uh, the administration thinks that Iran can exercise some control over the Houthi rebels in Yemen. And uh, the administration also keeps up in the possibility, uh, keeps up in the possibility that eventually America and Iran can reach a nuclear agreement. So um, it was spin on one level, but on another level, I think very revealing of what of the Biden administration's attitude toward the Middle East. Why did they take that attitude toward the Middle East? Well, they thought that they were going to spend all their time building up a position in East Asia vis-a-vis China. But of course, on February 24th of last year, uh, the largest war in Europe since World War II erupted. And so they have to think about that. And what strikes me on the, the drone and what we've been learning about where the order came from to engage the drone, the Russians rushing to recover the drone, our response, it it just reinforces the idea that the Russians are controlling the tempo of this war, that we are so fearful of escalation that we just allow the Russians to control the tempo of the war. So now they're going after our unmanned assets over the Black Sea. Um, I think Trump established in his term when he didn't respond to the Iranian downing of an American drone, that America would not respond uh, when unmanned vehicles are destroyed. But when the Iranian militias in Iraq killed Americans, that's when Trump ordered U.S. forces to take out Soleimani. So on the ladder of escalation, if, if we don't greet this downing of the drone with a robust response, and I'm not talking about declaring war on Russia, I'm just saying a robust response. What's next is they're going to target Americans. And I don't know whether that's going to be training facilities in Poland or or what, but they will do that because the, in Putin's mind, he can keep pushing and pushing and pushing in order to break the will of the West to support Ukraine. And, that, and the drone attack is just one step on that path. Crushing Verocity. Oh, here it came. Know, we're we're <laughs> kind of ha- having a fun time there. Yeah. Now we got, now we got, now we got. We had Gulliver, a few us. good men. And then, of course, we end with the World War Three. Yes. Uh, look, what would, what would we be if we weren't, you know, if we weren't true to ourselves? So we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christine, and Noah. 
I, not Noah. I apologize. Noah in absentia. Noah. Noah's doing a really great job on the He's like Elijah at our podcast table. <laughs> he is. You, you leave right. an open That's mic right. for Noah. The open door, <laughs> the empty chair. <laughs> oh, the empty chair. Anyway, we're Abe, Christine, and Matt. It's the by the way, it's the first time I've done that. Yeah. Since since Matt's uh, you know, uh taking the chair. It took you all of two weeks to get tired of me. Instead oh. <laughs> of bringing up Noah. Anyway, yeah, if you listen to the editors, Noah's Noah's uh Noah's a very uh, relaxed and peppy presence over there. So that's a that's a, 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 a I keep my I, I I get my Noah fix now as a listener and not as a not as a uh, an interlocutor. But anyway, uh, so you can listen to him there, but you can listen to us here t- tomorrow and every every weekday. Uh, so for Abe, Christine, and Matt, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.